0: Hello and welcome to Six Figure Authors, the show that helps you take your writing career to the next level. I'm Lindsay Baroker, and I'm here with my two co-hosts. I'm Andrea Anderson.
1: And I'm Joe Lalo.
0: And we're gonna divide the show into two parts today. In the first half, we're gonna be talking a little bit of craft stuff with a focus on tips to make sure your sample pages are rocking and um, are gonna grab the reader and make them wanna buy your book. Obviously this is for eBooks specifically, but that's almost exclusively what our our readers are reading these days. And there's a lot of writer advice out there on hooks, kind of the first sentence, Uh, but in this day and age when people are downloading the sample pages and kind of getting the first 10%, and reading through that and then deciding whether or not to buy, we thought we should do something kind of focusing on you know how to really nail that first chapter or two. And you know it's worth thinking about it. the more expensive the book, the more likely readers are gonna sample before deciding. That's what I hear from people. It's anecdotal, I don't have any data, but that's uh, a lot of readers have said, oh yeah, yeah. Unless it's like a 99 cent book or something, we always grab the sample first. And um, so we wanna suck the reader in in that opening chapter or two. And then in the second half of the show, I grabbed some of David Gogren's 15 rules of advertising that he posted on his site a few weeks ago. And I'll of course put the link to that in the show notes. And um, we're gonna share some of them, which I think we grabbed five or six and also give our thoughts on them in case you guys are interested. All right, I think we're not gonna do news today since we just did news. So I will jump right into our first topic, which was tips for strong sample pages, AKA the first chapter. And I went ahead and grabbed from somebody else as one does. It's always better to steal than have to come up with stuff on your own. Um, This is from Anne R. Allen has a blog post from a few years back, still good stuff, on 10 things your opening chapter should do. And I thought that would be a good starting point for our discussion, a uh, list of reminders, if you will, before we go into some other tips and things you maybe want to avoid in those sample chapters. And again, I'll post the link to her blog post too if you wanna check it out. But uh, here are the 10 things that she mentioned. Number one, introduce the main character. And she says, whoever whoever we meet first in a book is the character we'll bond with. Uh, Number two, make us care enough to go on a journey with that character. Number three, set tone, i.e., she says, you don't want to start out a romantic comedy with a gruesome murder scene or open a thriller with light flirtatious banter. (laughs) So I'll never be able to write a thriller. And you want to immerse your reader in the book's world from the opening paragraph. Number four, let us know the theme number five, let us know where we are. Don't give us a ton of physical description, but we need to know what the planet slash historical time period we're in is. Number six, introduce the antagonist. And she says an antagonist can be a whole society, an addiction, a judicial system or anything that might thwart a hero from achieving his or her goal number seven ignite conflict we need conflict not only in the opening scene but we need to see an overarching tension that will drive your plot number eight give us a goal tell us what your protagonist wants and she says the ultimate goal might not show up in chapter one but we do need a goal in chapter one that will lead to the ultimate goal number nine present an exciting life-changing inciting incident This incident has to cause something to happen that will propel us to the next scene and the one after that and through the entire book. Think of it as the explosion that launches the rocket of your story. Number 10, introduce the other major characters. Major is the key term here, she says, don't let minor characters upstage the hero in the opener. In fact, you're better off without any minor characters in the opening scene. All right, guys, let's discuss. Do you have any thoughts at these? Are you good at getting them all in or are there any that you disagree with? Oh, I'm really good at getting them all in. <laughs> just kidding.
2: Um, so I don't know how good I am. I mean, I, 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 uh, I introduced the main character and I, I hope that I make the readers care about the journey and I definitely set the tone and let readers know where, the, you know, all of that stuff. That's, that's something that as you've been writing for a long time, you don't even have to think about. It, it just happens because, you know, you're automatically like, okay, how can I show that this is a modern day story? Um, they pick up a cell phone, you know, things like that or, or whatever, they grab, grab their car keys, you know, things like that. Um, so those kinds of things are, are pretty easy to get. Um, I am going to throw it out there that some of it depends on the genre though. Um, and since I'm writing and reading mostly romance right now, that's basically where my brain is. So I'm, I'm super picky about my romances and I'm going to go into some of the things that really, really bother me about romances here. And she kind of mentions it a little bit, but, um, um, I prefer it when we get a chapter, if if it's multiple POVs. So if we've got the guy and the girl and, and POVs from both of them, I prefer it if we get a chapter from the guy and a chapter from the girl before the meet-cute and the inciting incident happen. And I don't care if the meet-cute and the inciting incident happens in the second person's chapter, um, but I want to know who they are solidly before I understand why them being stuck together is such a big deal because if they're stuck together and i don't understand why it's going to be a, it's going to be frustrating for them i don't i don't really care about the story anymore uh and so we need to understand who the reader i mean who the readers who the who the characters are before we understand why that adhesion in the romance is such a frustrating um point for them um and so and but if it's if you're writing from one character so one character's point of view i want i want to get to know the main character but then i also i want to get into the point of point of the book really really quickly so i want that inciting incident to happen pretty quickly in the front if i'm doing fantasy i want it to be i don't like getting to know characters very much in fantasy books i mean i want to get to know them but i'm reading the fantasy for the action and so i want that inciting incident to happen pretty quickly because a lot of the time the inciting incident teaches you about the uh the character and of course that's just how i am and i know that's because i have activator and i know that anybody who does strengths is like andrea is only saying she wants things to get moving because she is an activator (laughs) anyway uh it's true sorry um anyway so but okay so um when you're when you're doing both povs i want to know how both characters function before getting to the point of the book, I would know that I'm going to fall in love with the characters. I want to know that they're going to make me want to continue reading the book because if I don't care about them, then I don't care why they're put together. um Okay, so then where major and minor characters are concerned, it can easily go both ways, in my opinion. And again, this is just my opinion. Um, I've really enjoyed romances where the author introduces minor characters in the first chapter and where we're only with and um, on the opposite side where we're only with the main er- character main character uh if i had to choose i would prefer the main character to be alone for several paragraphs and then have us meet a best friend or a close co-worker or something like that those minor characters are able to show us more about the main character and how he or she thinks and sees life and whatever struggles they're dealing with and in romances this is andrea's point of view and i know and i know not everyone's going to agree with this but romances anyone other than the hero and her- heroine heroine <laughs> other than the crack and heroin (laughs) i can't say these words um is a minor character to me that's just my point of view romances where best friends hold huge roles tend to be hit and miss with me frequently they distract they distract from the romance and introduce subplots i'm not always interested in um i don't care about their plight until they're the hero of their own book um and yes i've read romances especially recently like last month i read a whole bunch of different romances and they they anyway um I have read romances where the main character veers away from the romance to help a side character with a subplot and I was like oh my gosh I'm not reading chicklet I'm not reading um you know an, an action adventure I'm reading a romance spent time I want to see the romance build and so that it's just it's annoying to me when minor characters have huge subplots and to me a minor character again is anyone who is not a hero the main characters to love interests Anyway, I love the rest for comments. All of it applies to romance and pretty much all of it applies to fantasy in my um, very humble opinion. (laughs) Kato.
1: All right. Um, So yeah, this is definitely an excellent list of things to do, if not specifically in your first chapter, then as early as you can. And as Andrea says, uh, it depends pretty greatly on genre, on how many of these you're going to have and and how you're going to use them. if you're writing an epic fantasy that's going to soar past 125,000 words, then you might be better foreshadowing some of those elements rather than introducing them. Like, um, if you, your character might not enter encounter the actual antagonist until much, much later. And unless you're going to do a cutaway to an antagonist scene, um, the first 10% or so might, might be too early to introduce them. But, um, Main character setting, those are super easy and efficient put into the opening sections of the book. You can honestly put a a pretty good indication of the main character and the setting in the first paragraph of the book. Um, But again, if you're writing an an epic, slow accumulation of characters is more common. And and so you don't want to short circuit a genre expectation by introducing a ton of characters early on. Um, unless you're going to try to do you, there are certainly ways to do it very intelligently. Like I've, uh, I've seen people have like uh, a big party at the beginning that introduces a ton of major characters that you find out later are major characters. And you might've only thought were people at the party, but, uh, in general, the longer your book, uh, the more likely you're going to have to push off some of this past, uh, the opening. Although again, we're talking percentage as opposed to like number of pages, which means 10% of 150,000 words is 15,000 words. So you might still be hitting all these uh, within that, but this sample is just particularly huge. Um, another thing that I'll say here is uh, if you're trying to come up with a way to do this, like if you're afraid that you've got late elements in the book that are probably the hooks of the book, and you're afraid you're not going to be able to put them into the, into the, the, uh, the, sample. This is where I'm going to raise a specter of the prologue, which I know is a contentious issue, but prologues very frequently have a sharper cut between their focus and the following chapters. And you can therefore put things that are somewhat more isolated and more standalone in a prologue that you might not put in chapter one. Um, Or you could just write the first chunk of chapter one as though it was a prologue and just (laughs) avoid that whole issue altogether. Um, So yeah, that's, 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 that's what I would say on this. Like, Unless you're going for a slow burn, I would say try to try to check all those off. And I, I was actually running through the list as Lindsay was reading it, trying to decide if I had hit all of those in the book of Deacon, which is my longest book. And I think I did. I think I was pretty uh, pretty economical in the beginning of that one. So thumbs up.
0: I know. I it's probably a good idea to reread these every now and then and just have them in your mind. Um, did am I the only one who read it? make sure the theme is introduced and was like theme i'm supposed to have a theme when i write genre fiction (laughs) uh joe at least is laughing um you know i usually do end up with kind of a theme across the series or something but i'm it's definitely one of those things i kind of discover as i go and i'm not sure i've ever consciously gone back and and said oh i I need to make sure the theme is introduced in the first chapter (laughs) might not be a bad idea uh, Andrea, meet cute. Is this like a romantic comedy, contemporary romance term? Because I feel like in sci fi romance, there's no meet cute. Some alien is kidnapping a human woman for breeding and she gets thrown into jail. And he's a weird dude with a bunch of protrusions and a, he's probably a barbarian or warrior of some kind. I don't know. That's
2: perfect. Yeah. If you throw that in contemporary romance, your reader's going to throw the books away. <laughs> uh, but yeah, that's meet why I... you,
0: when the couple meets. <laughs> all right there's not a lot of cuteness i mean there's some i don't want to say that yeah but, uh... <laughs> i think
2: meet cute's a horrible term i actually learned that term by watching the holiday jack black and kate winslet and there's a kate blanchett i can't remember and uh cameron diaz great movie
0: <laughs> all right well i have to think about it now when i think back on like my romance my introduction to romance was like romantic comedy movies in the 80s like pretty woman and things like that so i guess there was cute his car was cornering like it was on rails right all right for the five people out there that remember that movie in the dialogue so i would say that you know these are not hard and fast rules but i do think it's a good formula to kind of follow or try to check off maybe it might mess with you if you and they're trying to write your chapter and then do it, I get that, 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 and that. Uh, Yeah, and you know, of course, if you don't have everything, it's probably not the end of the world, but uh, maybe kind of a divert from these at your own risk. And maybe I would say not so much with your first book, you know, later on you can kind of be more of a rule breaker when you've got an established fan base that they're gonna give you a shot, you know, they're not gonna be so quick to like download the sample chapters first, you know, they'll see you have a new book out and buy it, hopefully. Um, so with romance, I would say, actually, d- these are just our own reader preferences to uh, giving us some ammunition <laughs> to uh, talk about. Uh, to counter Andrea as a reader, I probably won't continue on with a romance where the couple didn't meet in the sample pages, unless the author is really good and has made me just adore the characters independently of each other. And it's kind of like, you are it's obvious it's going to be great when they get together. Because I've kind of been burned a lot. I picked up too many books where it ended up that the chemistry wasn't there or the couples were outright obnoxious when they interacted with each other because I guess the author felt that was the way to create conflict and I ended up not finishing those books so it was a waste of money so now I am one of those people that I always read to the sample pages and I have to be really into something to buy it uh, so unless the other conflict is really compelling and I super like the characters I'd be at past and I've noticed in you know the as more sci-fi romances and contemporary romances or romantic comedy that um, I picked up Lately, like books that are absolutely killing it in the Kindle store, because I always, I'm like, I gotta see what these guys are doing. You know, uh, common theme is when the pacing has been super fast and the hero and heroine have met, and the opening pages like well before the sample was over. And so I would say that might be a safer way to go. It's not like you're assured in either way, uh, you know, <laughs> that you're gonna hit hit it big. That's just my two cents. Though I find that indie authors in general. Uh, often the pacing is faster than the more traditionally published and I would say more traditionally trained (laughs) or a little often you get kind of a slower build with more world building and a little more loving to individual sentences and that kind of thing and I I freely admit that I've um when I've done romances like sci-fi romance or fantasy romances I have not always been able to get you know sometimes the story comes to you first uh, and maybe that's a I'm more fantasy first, romance second. So I'm not trained so much to like oh, the cup, think about the couples uh, as the primary thing. I think about the story first, and then sometimes it's a uh, five chapters and there's a dog barking uh, before I can get them together. Hopefully she will not do too much of that since she sounds like a foghorn. Um, But uh, I do think this is a clear example of how sample pages have changed the way we choose books. People will have had the whole book before them, you know, they've committed it, they've bought it. They might give you a few chapters to see, you know, before uh, deciding if they're going to stick with it. But when you get to that 10% mark and have to decide whether to buy, especially with a more expensive book, you need to make sure you're going to like it. And I agree about introducing the main character in page one. When I haven't done it, I've tended to regret it as a writer. And it's usually a sign that the core story starts off a little slower. I feel it's not as intriguing as some of the other characters and side stories uh, because I felt compelled to start with another POV character. And looking back, I should have just tried to make the introduction to the hero better because um, as a reader, like she said, I've been pointed in books, as a new main character whether it was in book two, or also where like a bunch of side characters came in and took over the show from what I thought was the main character. That's actually one of my beefs with a lot of epic fantasy, especially the kind of the old school stuff where here's this main character that you got attached to in chapter one. And then suddenly you've got these hundred page gaps between his POV section, because there's so many other characters that you may not like as much. You may not feel as attached and you haven't bonded as much as the character you got on page one. so. But you know, that's just my feelings on that. Uh, some epic fantasy readers are perfectly fine with that kind of thing. Again, it's just, you know your genre and your audience best. Um, I do agree that with like the multiple POV characters with the number of storylines, you're not gonna be able to introduce all of them, probably <laughs> all of the major characters up front. Often in epic fantasy or space opera, they're in different parts of the galaxy or the world. But usually even when it's like an ensemble cast like that, you've got kind of a main, main protagonist you know, sort of the person who embodies the theme, those of us who have themes like, you know, Frodo in Lord of the Rings, arguably one of the lesser interesting characters, but arguably the main character. All right, let's move on, transition to things to avoid doing in the sample chapters and I'll pass it back to Andrea. I have a rebuttal, just kidding. I don't.
2: <laughs> no, I'm I listening to you guys talking about Epic Fantasy makes me go, I'm so glad I'm not writing Epic Fantasy because I enjoy reading it. Um, sometimes, sometimes I don't. It depends on if the good author is good, but it's overwhelming to think of all the plots and all the the subplots and all the characters. I'm like, you guys are uh super superheroes, just so you know.
0: That's why I have to write something easy in between. <laughs> I'm like I, my werewolf whole werewolf series that actually ended up selling pretty well was like oh, I need like a palate cleanser. I think that's what Joe calls them, you know, something just kind of like seventy thousand words, one POV. Let's do it
2: seventy thousand words. And I'm like, my books are like fifty to sixty thousand. My romances are so. <laughs> okay, so things to avoid doing the sample pages. Um. I'm, I'm always the, it's going to depend on the genre guys. Uh, and I'm going to say that again, in, in my opinion, it's going to depend on the genre and the reader. Um, but after thinking it over a bit, I would recommend not doing anything that annoys you as a reader, even if you feel like the story needs it. Um, for example, I really, really dislike it. When books give a totally different story at the start of each chapter. And I think, Mistborn does this, and possibly Elantris, and possibly every single other thing that Brandon Sanderson has ever written, (laughs) and I really loved Mistborn and Elantris, Um, but I didn't like that aspect of it, and it's very common in speculative fiction, and yet, guess what I did with my first version of Forsaken Prince back when it was the key of Kalenia for seven years, yeah, that's what I did anyway. So I'm going to be, um, kind of bold here and say that when you're doing something you don't like to read, it's because you're making up for a lack in the writing itself. And I definitely was with Forsaken Prince when it was the key of Kalenia. I was like, there's something wrong with my book and I need to make it stronger and I need to add this subplot in. And the only way I could think about doing it was to add in a journal entry at the beginning of every single chapter. And when I rewrote the book, I removed that part and made the main story stronger and it's done so much better. And I just, I don't feel, apologetic anymore about that book um, and a lot of the time you might not recognize you've done something that you hate because <laughs> sometimes we don't recognize we're not it takes stepping back and away from our emotions and away from this thing that we created so close to our heart recognize that we're doing something that doesn't work for us and therefore won't work for our readers. And the reason I suggest avoiding this is because you want to attract readers who will resonate with you and your stories. And if you're doing things you hate, you'll end up with readers who don't find their home with your books. And, um, it's not good to be lukewarm. I mean, readers who are lukewarm, they're not passionate. (laughs) That's like one of those tautological statements. So anyway, okay.
1: Um, so sometimes it's fun to like set up a, traje- a trajectory or foreshadow something in your book and then subvert those expectations later in the book to keep the audience guessing. It's just a thing you can do and, and it can produce a really memorable thing. I'm going to suggest that you don't do that during your sample pages. Like don't set up the expectation of something in your book during the sample pages that's subverted later. Uh because chances are somebody who read the sample pages picked up the book because they liked the direction it was going. And if you, if you pull the switcheroo, I mean, you can do it in such a way that it's a great payoff and they love it, but it's probably something better to do later in the book or later in the series, once you've got them hooked. Uh, Plus the longer uh, uh, that you have, you know, the the more precedent you have, the better the switcheroo is going to be. And then, Because a lot of stories involve plucking a person out of a dull drudgery of normal life and putting them, you know, the call to adventure, like the mono myth always has a call to adventure and leaving a place uh, that was familiar to them or arriving in an unfamiliar place. It's useful and sometimes downright necessary to establish the drudgery. You have to set the baseline of what this person's life was like before the call to adventure. And because it's the introduction of the character that comes first. So this puts you in a situation where you may feel inclined to really play up the drudgery and have that be the first thing that you see the character do. Uh, I would say be very economical with it and get past it quick. Like again, by necessity, a lot of this is going to show up early in the book. But there are, you know, flashbacks, anything you can do to sort of get to the meat of it. As it was said in the beginning, get to the inciting incident during the the sample pages. You want to make sure you do that, because uh, if if you spend the entire sample establishing that this person's life desperately needs a call to adventure, but then you don't get to it, that's a bad time. So, yeah, uh, don't be purposely dull. Should go without saying, but I've read books where they were.
0: I feel like that's a really common thing where authors, their first book, they, they think, you know, they do it, they write it and then they give it to an editor or critique or something. And eventually come to the realization that they need to cut like the first seven chapters <laughs> because the story starts in chapter eight. So if that's something you've had happen, know that you're not alone. So for my comment uh, of things to avoid in the sample chapters and even, even epic fantasy people is like, I know Andrea mentioned like some Big big sellers have a huge audience and I'm not going to say what they're doing doesn't work, but it is important to realize these last 10 years have really changed the way that people consume books. It used to be you got your paperback from the library or maybe you read the first couple pages and the back of the book and you looked at the cover at the bookstore and then you bought it. And once you drop $10, like you're going to give it a pretty good shot. Before throwing away, but now we're in this area era where you can download ten chapters, go to the tub, and you try all of them. You know, and like maybe it's the ninth one is the one that you end up buying. You just pass up on. I've actually I've had the realization that I have had books where in the past. I, it took me like 50, 60 pages to really get in them, but I was camping or something and I only had a couple books along. So, and they turned out to be favorite books and I loved the author and wrote everything by them. But I just, these days it's so easy to go eh, eh, you know, you didn't grab me in the sample pages. I have nine more samples here. So it's just uh, something to be aware of is that we probably don't have as much time, as much commitment from the, you know, average e-reading person as uh, when everything was still in paper. Um, But so my thing, my suggestion, and this will come as no surprise to regular listeners, but I'm going to go with avoid anything but minimal backstory and world building in these opening chapter or two. I continue to be amazed or maybe appalled by how often I look up, I pick up fantasy and sci-fi. And I I think our genres are the worst because we create these whole worlds and we feel that people have to get a lot of it in order to understand what's going on. But by page two, We're getting everything explained to us and it slows down the pace so much. And sometimes there's so much interspersed in between like dialogue that you completely lose track of the dialogue and what's actually going on. And isn't that indie only, this is both sides. i pick up traditionally published stuff that's just like this. And I'm like, wow, how did an editor not suggest to trim this down a little bit? Um, You know, and later on, once your readers are sucked into the characters' lives, they'll be really a lot more open to learning about the world and what makes them tick. And they'll be kind of immersed in This uh, unique and interesting setting that you've created. So it's not like saying don't do backstory, just wait, (laughs) you know, go as minimal as you can in the opening couple of chapters uh, to really get the pace going, people turning the pages and into the characters, you know, who are going to be the most important thing for most of us, uh, especially for. You know, i've talked about this before Our studies have shown that female readers tend to be more attached to the characters and that's what we really want to get right away male readers sometimes they really enjoy the world building more and will tolerate more of that just as a generalization uh, that is not certainly speaking for everybody but um yeah and you would actually be surprised how much mystery you create by not explaining everything right off the bat and mystery is one of those things that compels us to turn the pages because we want to find out well, why is a society or world like this um, and I I, perfect, I totally admit, I've made this mistake myself. We are not perfect, you guys, we've, you know, having, you would think having written however many novels now, 50, 100 novels, that it's just super easy, but you'll catch yourself doing it, like explaining more than you probably need to. Um, I think one of the other big no-no's is just failing to make the reader care about the protagonist. If they don't care what happens to them, they're not gonna read on, end of story. And a lot of people mistake this for having to make the protagonist likable right off the bat. And they just shoehorn in this awkward, save the cat scene. There's even a book called save the cat. Uh, But it's really about making your characters human and someone we can identify with. Once we identify with them, we have a connection. We start to hear what happens and we want to read on. You know, it's great if they're likable, but then you run the risk of like goody two shoes, not seeming realistic. And then you don't identify with them as much uh and i fully say you know admit that all this is easier said than done like i said i've missed the, missed the mark plenty of times and i haven't always had my audience firmly in mind when creating the protagonist i know my readers are largely people in their 30s and olders leaning a little more female than male yet i can't help myself and end up like every third series writing this ya teenage protagonist Those never end up doing as well as my books where I stick to sort of the middle-aged characters that are easier for my audience to identify with. And I may be a little lucky in that one of my strengths as a writer is kind of dialogue and humor. And that's something that can help endear people to the characters, even if they don't necessarily identify with them. Um, And that has brought me readers in a lot of different demographics. So I don't want to say, oh, you know, 40-year-old female is the majority of my readers because that's not necessarily true. But I think if I was smarter (laughs) or, you know, sometimes it's hard to like, way we've talked about this before, the business decision with what the muse wants to do, what they're inspired to do. uh, I would stick to doing protagonists that are designed more to appeal to my core audience. All right, do you guys have any more thoughts on these top 10 things or sample chapters, things to include or not to include before we move on?
2: Well, Joe's most recent um, comment there about drudgery um well, that was his most recent one right when he was talking about drudgery or was yep. that before yeah um so i i was writing a scene today that i was fighting fighting myself really really hard for over and i was like listening to joe i'm like i'm cutting half of that scene it's boring i'm cutting it because it doesn't need to be there and it's it's establishing something but i can establish all of that in one line of dialogue on the phone so sometimes it doesn't even i mean it's not that difficult sometimes and sometimes you can establish that drudgery really easily it doesn't have to be so thank you joe <laughs> you just gave me the answer to a problem i was thinking over all day
1: <laughs> yay uh, i'll i'll just say that uh, the the uh don't uh, just don't explain everything sometimes mystery is more interesting in the epic fantasy i'm writing now right now one of the flavor elements is that uh, the bar snack a tavern snack is roasted crickets and at no point has it ever been established that this is an unusual thing. <laughs> that's just, everyone eats crickets, next. And uh, I've gotten the comment or two where like, that's so interesting, you like, hooray. Hopefully you don't need to know why because I actually haven't come up with a reason.
0: <laughs> crickets are an excellent source of protein. So depending on where they live in the world, if there's not a lot of cattle strolling past, hey. Uh, all right so we're going to move on now into the second half of our show where we're going to go over some of the rules of advertising and as i said uh, David Gogren had a nice write up a couple weeks ago on his post called the 15 or maybe there's rules for advertising books and there happened to be 15 of them so we're going to pluck a few of these out talk about them a little bit um but definitely go check out his post there's a it's a good solid you know He's got some good advice in there, which is why we're going to discuss it. All right, number, well, this wasn't number one, but the first one we picked out is don't spend what you can't afford when you are starting out with ads the old gambler's rule should apply i.e only spend what you can afford to lose certainly don't borrow money for an ad campaign that's putting incredible pressure on yourself and multiplies the chance of a terrible outcome whether you have a lot to spend or a little start small only increase your budgets when you are sure the ads are working and by that I mean selling books rather than generating traffic or hoovering up likes not all likers blossom into lovers alas those are David's words. And Andrea, do you want to comment first? I love that.
2: He has such great words there, hoovering and blossoming into lovers. <laughs> are great words to combine. Um, I really love this point. Uh, I mean, we've talked about finances a lot in the show, and I think that we all pretty much have the same view about it. And it just... Right now, especially as I approach my next book launch, um, I've been really, really tempted to borrow money from our personal finances to help it go big, but I haven't been fully comfortable with that idea, and David's point here puts my edginess into words. Um, if this book flops, I don't want to be worrying about about the business having to pay us back, and uh, I plan to write romance for a long time, and so I can actually take the time to invest from the previous romance into the current romance and then it's going to snowball and eventually i'll be able to invest more and more and for this upcoming launch i'm planning on spending about 500 dollars, which is reasonable to me on a launch, and I know five hundred dollars is like absolute pennies for most experienced authors, but that's good money for someone just starting out or getting back into it after taking a really long hiatus, like I have. Um, I still haven't mastered romance ads on Facebook or Amazon. I haven't spent hardly any time on them actually, so I'm not totally convinced I can make them profitable. So this book book launch is going to be a big experiment for me, and um, I I not I'm not convinced or committed to spending five hundred dollars if it's not going to do anything. I don't want to spend money that I'm going to regret having spent later if the book flops. And uh, that's a lot of pressure to put on myself. And like he says, add, adding adding debt to it puts so much more pressure on you. So, yeah.
1: This is uh, something that I've lived my life by, and, and it's largely the reason that I've been able to weather some really epic downturns and earnings for as long as I have. Uh, keeping a close eye on return on investment when you are making money and never making an investment that requires a significant return in order for you to be able to pay for it means that when things don't go according to plan you merely fail to gain ground rather than actively lose ground. Uh, The one exception that you might consider is by the nature of how you get paid when you're when you're getting paid with royalties. uh, Sometimes you have literally already earned the money, uh, it just hasn't shown up yet. So like there's a two month lag between when you earn the money when you receive it you know the money's coming. Uh, there are circumstances where you can be as near to certain as you're ever going to be that you're going to have the money on a specific date. And so you can spend it as long as you don't have to pay it back before that specific date. But I would still only do that at, you know, with discretion because you never know what could happen. They could pull the cord on your account. That money never shows up. You, you thought you earned $15,000 after a really huge spike. And it turns out you're never going to get that money. And now you're $15,000 in debt. So like, this is how I live my life is thinking of the way in which that this can go wrong. (laughs) So, you know, take it with a grain of salt. But I try to avoid anything that puts me under, uh, you know, at all.
0: Joe and I are the glass half empty people on the podcast. Andrea is usually a little more optimistic, (laughs) but even she's saying, nope, nope, (laughs) not going to spend it. I think I'm glad there weren't that many advertising options when we got started, because I couldn't be tempted with any of that. And, and, but I didn't, if I had had the money to spend back then, like on uh, spend thousands of dollars on Facebook or Facebook was a thing. I don't think they had advertising then, but uh, anyway. I didn't know my covers were not that good, or I, I kind of knew they weren't great, but I didn't know, there were no cover designers, It <laughs> wasn't really an industry yet back then, so I didn't know how to get better covers, you know, it was, uh, it would have been wasted money, and yeah, so it's good that we only had, like, a couple sponsorship sites, and you had to apply to get accepted, and you could do Goodreads advertising, and I remember doing that, but it was like, you'd be lucky if it spent 33 cents a day, you know, it's just like, yeah your first pay-per-click but um yeah to what david said i think there is a perception that a lot of authors have that if you just had more money to spend on ads you'd be successful but what you really need to find is the formula that will sell your books before you start spending money especially if you don't have a lot of it on ads chances are if you start advertising too early you'll be throwing that money away because it's pretty rare for someone that's new to just kind of nail what the market wants as far as a story and nail it with their first cover their first blurb and you know first book to be honest so just something to consider there are every now and then somebody pays tons of attention and really gets it right but uh i don't know i don't know about you guys but i feel like the more i try to like follow all the suggested advice and like carefully craft a story like a that's gonna become a bestseller. you know it's got all the formula it's got all 10 things the less well that story does and it's often the ones where i just like had an idea had two characters that had a lot of charisma together you know and those are the ones that have been the much better sellers for me so that's my experience with that uh we will move on to the next one so that the oh, podcast easy. doesn't take
2: yes is it okay if i make a quick comment just sure Um, Just kind of going off of what you first said, I want to make a point here for our listeners who are newer. Um, I think people have this, they look back at the past and they're like, oh my gosh, I wish so much I could have been publishing in 2011, 2010, 2012. I'm like, I don't, it's really hard to explain how hard it was to be an author, an indie author back then. We floundered a lot. Like there was no Google. We couldn't Google and say editors for indie authors or covered designers, anything like that. There weren't any answers back then. No one to follow or listen to until like Joe Conrad started talking and newer authors have it hard because of competition. But I just want to remind you guys, you have so many resources that we did not have available back then. So if you are on your game, it's yeah. Anyway, just chin up. (laughs) Sorry. I loved your initial comment there. I was like,
0: right. It's, it's a, there's you know there were good things about back then less competition but hard to have any way to get at you know even twitter people were on twitter buy my book buy my book because that was the only way to you know unless you happen to kind of get lucky and get found right away or you know where you weren't one of the first people publishing rapidly at 99 cents you know that kind of thing although there was no ku then so 99 cents you were not making much on those books uh but yeah so it's you know you just have to this those were those times, these are these times, they're different and you just gotta roll with it. <laughs> uh, but so David's next tip is to survey the field before making your choice. He says, take a look at each of the three major ad, platform, ad platforms before deciding where to spend all your book advertising dollars, Amazon, BookBub, and Facebook. Play with each of them a little, dip your toe into some resources and get a feel for what works where. Look at the strengths and weaknesses of each platform because they're wild, wildly different in so many ways. Go deeper if you want my advice and check your comp authors on each platform. Uh, make sure they're viable targets because one of your key authors might not be targetable at all on Facebook, but might have a healthy following on book bookbub or they might have no followers on bookbub or they might be too expensive to target on amazon so time invested researching these things is often money saved on bad ads and i'm going to start my comment off with now that i understand
2: the strengths, i would say don't spend too much time researching because it's going to stop some personalities from publishing so don't don't get too lost in the weeds but follow his advice here because it is good advice um, and um, Facebook targeting the past hasn't allowed a lot of control over authors who you can target, but it has allowed me to target my genre. Um, in my case, I know other, I know most other romance authors use Amazon, but I also know that the ones who get Facebook ads to work really get them to work. So I'm going to be focusing most of my efforts there again. Um, still anyway, so I'm learning how to approach the marketing as a romance author, and this is a totally new field for me. I know the Facebook ads platform the best and with how little time I have, it makes sense to focus that time on face, face, Facebook. <laughs> uh, luckily, if this doesn't work, I can, and I can see soon enough, it isn't working. I'll be able to ask Nolan, to take over with the budget on Amazon ads. Um, he's like me though. We're both a bit rusty. Um, but, but again, like me, where Facebook ads are concerned, he has a more solid grasp on Amazon and would have better luck there than I would. So I, I guess we'll just see. I'm trying not to build up too much things. Like I said earlier, I'm trying not to build up too much pressure on me and or to build up things too much for me or listeners. So don't expect anything big. (laughs) I don't need that extra.
1: Um, So, yeah, I I agree with this. Um, As the person on the podcast who took the deepest dive into uh, BookBub and actually had a couple of really successful ads and then completely stopped doing BookBub ads. Uh, I can absolutely say that um, the part about comp authors is super important and they can be very, very distinct. Uh, The performance of different authors and the value of different authors can be very distinct from platform to platform. Uh, For BookBub, it was all about finding the right ones. And I had actually tried to port over the list of of, uh, names over to doing a Facebook ad found that half of them didn't uh, have, weren't targetable. So yeah, but also like, even though you can tease largely similar levels of flexibility out of each of these platforms, the way you want to do something and the way that things make sense to you can make a huge difference on how effectively you can do ads. And because each platform has its own behaviors and quirks and stuff like that. It, even a, even a platform which might have a, a smaller reach, if it just makes more sense to you, then you're going to have a better, you know, better performance out of it. So try them all. Uh, try to get more than a couple inches deep on them. Uh, and then, you know, then you can make an informed decision about how you're going to use them. Uh, and you, you never know. Maybe the one that you thought was way too complicated for you is the one that you just click with. So yeah, certainly doing the research uh, and then giving it a try is advisable.
0: Right. I would also say to kind of dabble with them all, because you may find out some genres do better than others on the different platforms. Some series do better than others. And you may also find that some of them you just don't like. And no matter how good it does, you're just like, like with me, I really Facebook ads, all the Dumbasses that can leave comments on them that drives me nuts absolutely nuts yeah, and I don't know why it'll be like a bunch of supportive stuff and then one dumb dumb and you're like really dude um and I don't need that on Amazon you can buy the book or not <laughs> That's all you can do with those ads. Um, And I've also had better, pretty good luck on Amazon. So I veer towards that with my fantasy and sci-fi stuff. I I have heard of, um, like Andrea said, lots of romance authors in particular, just that audience is on Facebook being really receptive and willing to buy those uh, romance authors. And that's kind of one thing to figure out. It's also good to figure out too, like which places you can scale up your ads. Because sometimes you can have success on $5 a day, but you find that when you want to spend more, more like you're, you're making it profitable, and you're like, Oh, I wish I could spend hundreds of dollars a day so I could make hundreds or thousands of uh, dollars in sales. You that oh, well, it's really hard to scale up on this particular platform in my particular genre. So it's all part of the learning curve. All right, next one is to focus your dollars on one platform. All of the ad platforms are challenging enough to master when you focus on them. Trying to make headway with all of them at once is going to melt your brain. While the fundamentals of digital advertising can often stay the same, how that plays out in terms of best practices on each platform can be utterly different. Besides, mastering one platform is often more than sufficient. Getting a handle on two is just gravy. I'm not sure I know anyone who is excellent at all three, by the way.
2: Yeah. Word about the melt your brain thing. <laughs> um, yeah, I personally don't know anyone who's excellent, all three, and I know very few who can do more than one. Well, um, if you have a spouse or a partner or a friend or something who has a mind for date and all this stuff and wants to help out and that desire definitely needs to be there. That's a huge bonus for you. Um, but as I was thinking about it while answering this question, I'm not sure I'll have, um, Nolan help out at all. He's under a lot of stress right now. Work has been keeping him really busy, plus does run his own small business. And I already know I'm not going to do both Facebook and Amazon on my own. Uh, I'd also say that some people have an app, like what he was saying and what we have all said some people have an aptitude for one platform over another they're not all the same despite similarities and phrases like clicks and cost per clicks and impressions and all of that so if after spending time with one and watching youtube videos 20 books to 50k i think has some conference presentations on the different platforms um taking courses reading books etc you still feel like you're beating your head against a wall don't don't hesitate to try a different platform Uh, You don't have to master them all and you might find a different one comes easier. And I feel like my answer just repeated everything that we've already said. So maybe people needed to hear it in a different way.
1: (laughs) Um, Yeah. So interesting how I say earlier that you should be trying them all. Uh, I was always of the the mindset that you should have a broad stance and be as general in your skill set as possible. But as I've lived and observed, I have come to the conclusion that Jack of all trades, master of none is a handy guy to know, but not a handy guy to be like you want to be the jack of all trades and the master of one, you know, be an inch deep and a mile wide. But once you find the part of that mile you like best and start digging down so you can get a little more depth in that area, uh, a level of mastery opens up new doors and it's much more likely to give you a predictable lower bound on your, on your performance, which is usually the most important thing to have. Like, great. I, I love that the is the limit, but if I can guarantee I'm going to have X amount, I can plan on that. And uh, uh, also, if you think of the, the level of difficulty curve, like if just plot how difficult something is, there's always a, a part where the, the return on investment sort of spikes, you want to get to that spike, you want to get to the area where it really starts paying off. And if you're very general, and try to master everything, you might not get to that on any of them. So if you can get to that on one of them, fantastic, but focus, you get it to on at least one first.
0: I'm gonna expand on this a little and say you might wanna focus most of your ad money on one store too, because of the possibility of gaining organic sales and kind of getting some more than just beyond the clicks. Like uh, we know Amazon does this, but the other stores too, usually if you can get a book selling, even after if you have to stop or cut back on your ads, to some extent, it will continue to sell, but you have to have kind of gotten the ball rolling and gotten so many sales each month uh, before that. Uh, And the likelihood of achieving that when you're spreading things out. I think when people go wide, like. it's like the natural tendency to like, okay, I'm gonna go $10 towards Kobo, $10 towards Apple, 10 towards Amazon. But I think you need to look at like which stores actually, there is the possibility of kind of getting a little bit of a boost beyond what you're spending. And probably the bigger stores may be worth targeting unless you find that um, through your experimentation that there's less competition, maybe on a Kobo than an Apple, so maybe you want to put all your money and become the king of Kobo. Uh, you know, and uh, you do have to do some experimentation, but you know you'll probably also find that there are some stores that where, for whatever reason, your same cover, blurb, same book, convert better. It takes fewer clicks to make a sale on those stores and you're going to kind of have to watch your data a little bit to figure that out. But if you find out that Apple is really receptive to your genre, your book, uh, it makes sense to dial down and put more money towards that, even if it means, oh, maybe I'm not going to spend money uh, directing traffic to these other stores this month. And um, I also, I didn't grab it from David's article, but another point he made is that a store like Amazon has 20 years of experience, a gazillion data points when it comes to optimizing the store layout and the sales page. So even if you wanna make like a good chunk of your income from selling direct, you may wanna realize that your website that you buy out of the box or have somebody put together, probably is not gonna convert as well as Amazon where there's reviews, you know, there's uh, categories that people are super used to shopping in it. So even if you wanna do a lot with direct, you may wanna also pick Amazon and direct, you know, to focus your your money on, because it, there's just no, almost no barrier on Amazon because the credit card's already in there, you know, and people are I've already got their device. If they're Kindle people, it's just gonna go directly to the thing. I don't have to get it from book funnel. Um, you know, I think it's worth doing direct. Uh, and I know a lot of you really liked <laughs> when we had Katie on the show and we did too, she was awesome. Um, but yeah, I would just say maybe, also build up a presence at the same time on Amazon so that you can gain some of the benefits of uh, having reviews and and ratings and such there. All right, I think we got a couple more to do. David says, be careful of generic tips. I strongly recommend that you seek out specific best practices for book advertising rather than simply applying generic advice. As someone with a general marketing background, I can tell you that books are weird <laughs> we are selling super cheap products with tight margins where the customers are uber picky and have the most bizarrely niche taste and we're competing in a marketplace with maybe 1 million suppliers and over 8 million products yikes it's quite the market marketing challenge by the way so don't feel bad if you are struggling with it anyway my point is that general advertising advice can sometimes lead you astray i personally love some outside resources but i also have the experience to parse what will and what won't work for books um,
2: the only time I'd suggest seeking out general stuff is when you're very, very, very first learning the platforms and you have no idea even how to access them or create ads. Basic information is free and plentiful on YouTube and just Google searching. Um, when you need to start talking, targeting audiences or write ad copy or create images or anything like that, going general will probably hinder or, or hurt you, hinder or hurt you. That's way too many H's right there. <laughs>
1: Uh, you see my earlier statement about basic knowledge uh, in general and deeper knowledge in particular. Uh, I find when I'm giving advice, I almost invariably use the phrase generally as a qualifier to indicate that in this specific case, things are different. So generally you want to have a cover that stands out, but make sure that keep those covers close to genre expectations. Like my, my sentence, my advice that starts with generally always has a but. Uh, so, you know, generally it's safe to assume you can't afford cost per click more than a dollar, but nonfiction or box sets, blah, 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 blah. So uh, just the, the fact that I structure myself that way, where whenever I'm speaking generally, it's sort of to, to let people know that things are different here. That, that's, that directed my attention to the fact that general information is a starting point but not an end point. Uh, general information is good for making quick decisions. But once you start shoveling money into a system, you really shouldn't be making quick decisions. You should be a lot more thoughtful. So get, you know, deeper and more specific information
0: yeah i was uh glad that david with an intranet marketing background pointed out that yeah books are actually kind of hard <laughs> you know we don't make very much on each one and here we are paying for each click the same as people selling hot tubs with the two thousand dollar margin you know so uh not everything's necessarily going to work on a 399 ebook and i i've actually heard authors point out often in the author community that uh we tend to be a couple years behind or if not five years what the rest of the internet marketing world is doing so they'll follow bloggers and podcasts giving advice on how to sell products in general on amazon or in their own stores and if you want to pay attention to all that stuff if you're really into the marketing side i think that's fine um you can absolutely probably learn get some new tips and learn something new but if you're trying something other authors aren't doing and it seems new and up and coming just realize you're making yourself a guinea pig too and you could end up throwing a lot of money away trying the new thing so just speaking for myself as someone who's eh, you know not super into the marketing side i've learned enough to make it work but um i like to wait and make sure something is working in a world where we get just a tiny amount of money from the sale of each of our products so that's my thoughts on that and we have more guys i gave us so much to talk about this episode aren't you delighted (laughs) All right, next one from David. Spend a lot of time on your landing page. Make sure to focus a lot of attention on optimizing your landing page. Whether you advertise on Amazon, BookBub, or Facebook, you will most likely be pointing your ads direct to your listings on Amazon or elsewhere. Conversion is the most critical variable in advertising and probably the most under-discussed. The experience that readers have when arriving on your book's page will close the sale or drive them away. Everything must be in harmony working towards that goal. Your cover, price, title, blurb, sample. Authors invariably, invariably waste dozens of authors in the advertising weeds when the real problem was on their books page if the traffic you are sending to your books page is good quality i.e the right readers then the problem is invariably with your landing page
2: i love this point so freaking much (laughs) so so much uh the vast majority of authors who are struggling with getting ads to work for them um, have problems on their product pages, not the ads themselves. Um, when I first wrote that, that's what I felt. I I do know that there are a lot of authors who are new and don't know how to make ads work, but if you've been in it for a while and you understand, like you've been working on focusing on learning marketing ads and stuff like that for a while, and you know how to make them work it's really, really painful. Get your product page and and understand, you know? Um, yeah, I don't know. It's so much easier to get the ads to work. When your product page is solid if you have a solid book cover and description sample not having enough even if you have those things solid um, sorry about that Um, not having enough reviews can deter casual readers which most who land on your ad will be a lot of people click away instead of going out on a limb to download in the beginning get that getting that book page looking good as paramount You'll waste a lot of time by advertising a book that isn't ready to get advertised and you don't need a ton of reviews I don't have an exact number but I plan to experiment around once dr Lincoln has finished by sending a trickle of ads to all three in my series um I'm almost done writing it it's nearly done but anyway so uh one of the things that I've noticed in in consulting authors is a lot of the time they if they've been doing it for more than a couple of years they recognize what is off they're they're They'll be like, well, I'm not sure I, it could be my book cover, but maybe it's because of this, or maybe it's because that a lot of the time it's the thing that you're most insecure about. And, um, I, that's just, that's general advice. Like what Joe was saying, it doesn't always apply to everybody, but the thing that you're most insecure about is frequently, possibly the thing that needs to be checked and fixed. And if you feel like it's your book cover or your description or something like that, don't don't make excuses for it. Don't make, don't say, I'll look at that later. I'm, I'm working on the ads themselves because if you're focusing on learning ads and there's something about your product page that's not spot on, you're wasting a lot of money. And it's so, it's much easier to control the things that are within your control, control the things that are within your control <laughs> than it is to try to try to convert somebody based on a product page that's not, not as good as you can make it. So a little tough love. I love you guys, the end. <laughs>
1: So this can be a frustrating aspect of being a self-pubbed author. Your entire job is an endless sequence of most important things. Like the most important thing is that you finish the book because you need a book to sell. But the most important thing after that is the, you know, make sure that the book is presentable, good cover, good edit. Uh, but then the most important thing is to make sure your sales page is up to snuff. And so after that, the most important thing is getting people to go to the sales page with as few steps as possible. And after that, the most important thing is so, so on and so on almost, Every time I write a book, I'll wrap it up, send it off to the editor, and think to myself, there, I'm done. And then six seconds later, I'm like, oh wait, no, I have to do the blurb uh, and get, get all this stuff t- together. And you know it's, it's gotten easier of late. Like Amazon's formatting tools have become much, much better in the last few years. You can make a, a, a more distinctive and, and you know snappier, punchier uh, product page. But it can really feel exhausting to always have another task waiting for you at any stage of the thing. And every single one of them it becomes the most important at some point. It's just how priority works. Um, that said, this is a task you can't skimp out on. As a, as a consumer, I have skipped on plenty of products when there were, you know, not necessarily books, but books as well. Where I just went to the page and I clicked there and I was like, "That doesn't look like it was done by a professional," and just moved on. Like, like if you didn't put together a thing that looks like you're a pro, I don't want to buy your product because maybe your product won't be professional either. So yeah, you really have to you have to look like you're you're doing this for a living.
0: Yeah, this is. Everybody judges stuff by the page. Like I, I know when I go to look for an Airbnb, if it's obvious that they took the pictures with their phone and the person is standing in the one for the bathroom, you know, they're always standing there in the mirror, like here's my bathroom and here's me holding the phone. You know, it's never any surprise when those ones don't have as many reviews and uh, reservations and same with our books. Um, I would just reiterate that I, I often see ads for books with homemade covers and no reviews. And I just want to smack my forehead because it's like, ah, oh, do not spend Money on ads until you've pur- purchased a beautiful cover and had an editor friend, if not a copywriting pro, go over your blurb and make sure you've nailed the sample pages that we were talking about earlier, too. Uh, it's one thing if you don't have the money for ads or anything. You don't have the money to like spend, you can still get a pre-made cover pretty expensively. Like that's completely understandable. But when you have not spent money on those things and yet here you are dropping hundreds of dollars on ads, just realize that you need to just not spend that money on ads, you know, go out and get a better cover, make, you know, better package overall for your product. And if then you don't have any money left over for ads, so be it. Like there's a lot of ways still that you can get out there and hustle. And, uh, you know, we've talked about many times writing free books, putting those out for free, you know, or a free short story, joining the mailing list, groups of other authors in your genre to um, promote to mailing lists. There's lots of things you can do uh, without money if, if it's tight. Okay. Last one we're going to cover here from David's page, uh, again, Excellent list from David Gogren. If you want to go check out his page, he's got courses, books on this stuff. So since we're since we're basing half tonight's content on him, <laughs> you know, do check out his stuff. Um, but the last one we took is remember that common problems have solutions most common problems have well-established solutions at least in a meta sense for example if your ads aren't getting enough impressions it's usually an issue with bids or maybe budgets if your ads are getting impressions but no clicks it's usually a problem with your ads themselves targeting image or text if you're getting clicks but no sales then it's usually a problem with your landing page
2: and I don't really have anything to add here because um, it's 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 just really really it's great. I would print this out and put it up on my wall though. If you're just starting to learn ads, uh, it's it's a great straightforward explanation that a lot of authors ramble around quite a bit in the beginning. And it's it seems so like common was the common sense and so intuitive, but it's not not when you're first starting out. It doesn't just click like that.
1: If uh, in in the previous episode, I talked about using open source software. And if you use open source software, you quickly become aware of the likelihood that you're not the only person in the world who is having the problem that you're having. And that's liberating in a way, because it means if you can figure out how to articulate what's wrong, you can almost certainly find someone else to tell you how to make it right, or at least find the group of people who are currently trying to figure out how to make it right. Like the information is available, your problem is not unique. Uh, with advertising or anything else, it's easy to get yourself into the unpleasant mindset of believing that there's something wrong with you if you can't figure out how to do it and the fear that you simply won't be able to do something properly if you can't get it on your own. But there are answers out there. And, you know, even the ad platform itself has got it and in, it's, it's in their best interest for their ads to work for you. Because number one, you're going to keep using them if they do. And number two, you know, especially if it's Amazon, they're making money on both sides. So, uh, you know, seek help if you need it. The the platform wants you to succeed as well. So talk to tech support, look for advice. There's going to be best practices things. Uh, The information is almost always there. It's literally what the internet does best.
0: Yeah, I would uh, try to keep in mind that these things that David suggested, uh, Rather than jumping to like, oh, Amazon ads doesn't work, or it doesn't work in my genre, or this doesn't work in my genre, or this doesn't work with my type of book, like it's really easy to not want to take the blame. <laughs> but you know, we're not saying everything's perfect, and it's certainly possible to spend a fortune on these, even if they are converting. Usually, the ones that convert really well, uh, like Amazon, wants to spend more of your money because they're you're getting clicks and sales, and Amazon likes that. Um, but yeah, it's just really, you know, check everything first. Uh, consult friends in your genre people who are good at this stuff and ask like what am I doing wrong before assuming that the problem is the platform and uh, I will say I'm not one to necessarily crunch numbers obsessively but I I will watch something really careful like when I'm putting out launching a new series and running ads to book one in the series. And I will see how well they're converting. Um, And I have actually rewritten a couple of blurbs when it was clear, like they weren't turning clickers into buyers as frequently as with other books I've advertised in similar genres. And just as an example of one I've done where I realized belatedly that I picked a cover that was like really well tuned to the genre it was space opera um, that was where I was going to put it on Amazon even though the story I'd written was kind of like eh, maybe it's space opera-ish <laughs> you know but there are a lot of other things going on and uh, my cover completely fit in with like the top 10, 100 in space opera but it actually what didn't end up being very representative of the story I ended up writing and therefore the kind of the blurb I had to construct to make the story work like i thought it was a decent blurb but it wasn't really a space opera blurb and it didn't it was kind of a mismatch with the cover and that's one where you know that book one did not convert very well with that it's not surprisingly people clicked on that space opera cover and were like oh it's kind of action sci-fi or something but it doesn't quite go with the cover that you and this is i don't know about you guys but this happens to me when i ordered the cover <laughs> before i started writing this story uh because you know cover good cover artists get busy you got to reserve a few months out and stuff but um in the the case of this particular book i have in mind i ended up doing a different i was able to with the box set bundle one two three bundle them up had another you know good space hopper cover and i made a by doing by having three stories to work with and you know not having to be too true to the first one i was able to make it a more space opera space opera (laughs) e blurb for the box set and lo and behold that one converts better when i run ads to it so uh, realize it these little things they make a big difference if people click on a cover and then the blurb is not quite a match that can be one of the points where you know possibly they just go oh no um, and, uh, you know, again, if they, we talked about the sample pages, if everything else is firing all cylinders, but if they did the look inside to grab the sample pages and they're like, eh, this, isn't, this doesn't seem to really be what the blurb was, what I was expecting from the blurb, that could be another point where they downloaded that, but that's not a sale. So that's not going to be in your ad uh, dashboard, fortunately, I guess. Um, but I guess that is about all. Do you guys have any final thoughts on these before we wrap it up for the night? day whenever people are listening <laughs> I was just, just gonna say
2: don't get discouraged by this information take it one bit at a time and um recognize that this this information that we've shared and david goggren shared it represents years of education and learning and if you're just starting out or if you haven't focused on marketing a whole lot you're not gonna master it in a year or a week or a month or you know whatever It it can take a little while so don't get too discouraged
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a complicated uh, area for sure. It's, it's one, again, I'm 10 years, more than 10 years into my, uh, into my author journey. And it's still the weakest area for me is uh, mastering advertising. So you can get pretty far without being great at it.
0: Right. And, you know, I've certainly had the experience of some series are just easier to advertise than others. Like the cover, the blurb and genre expectations, they matched up really well, whether by accident or design. And um, that particular, you know, those particular series have done really well and they always do well when I spend money advertising them. And then the other ones were like, oh, the cover, the blurb, you know, something was kind of not totally in line with the genre. You know, those don't do as well. One of the reassuring hopefully things is that once you build up a fan base i talked about this before they're going to buy it no matter what like as long as it's in line with your other stuff to some extent so this is really just how you find new people and continue to try to get people in your you know world paradigm i don't know it's the end of, it's late. It was not even that late here, but it's nighttime here when we're, we're recording this and the brain is starting to go, but this is just, you know, it gets easier over time because you do get to start building up a lot more fans that will just, they don't care about the ads. They're buying it no matter what. So realize this is not everything. Not every sale you ever make is going to have to rely on advertising. It's just eh, something you do for part of the time, part of your marketing uh, and hopefully get new readers. All right. On that note, we will call it a day. And <laughs> I will put, as I said, in the show notes, links to Ann's, uh 10 Things to Do uh, in your opening chapter and then David's list on rules for advertising. So come on by sixfigureauthors.com with the number six if you want to get those links or a few little summation of some of our notes here. And that is about it. Thanks for listening, everyone. Have a great week. Bye. See y'all later.
1: So long, everybody.